Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us today is Portfolio Manager David Tulk to discuss the resilience of the current market, whether it will last and any implications for asset allocation going forward. David explains to host Pamela Ritchie that central banks are continuing to figure out how tight monetary policy needs to be to get inflation back down to a level they're comfortable with. He points out that economies have proven more resilient than what central banks would have thought and emphasizes that we aren't out of the woods just yet in terms of interest rate hikes. As interest rates have gone up, David also says he is surprised we haven't seen more weakness in the housing market and predicts that mortgage pressure will be very acute over the next couple of years. This episode was recorded on July 4th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Let's jump right into that, um, ultimately, where you think, actually, the Bank of Canada has to hold all kinds of things, saying there might be more rates to come, but um, the the equity market seems to think maybe that's not so true. What, what do you think the Bank of Canada is holding in their arms right now? Yeah, I think the bank has a pretty challenging summer uh, in front of it because you're exactly spot on and acknowledging that there are a lot of different things the Bank of Canada and actually all central banks are wrestling with. but. I mean, first and foremost, they're trying to figure out, you know, how tight does monetary policy um, need to be so that inflation comes back down to a level that they're comfortable with. And as they've gotten closer and closer to, you know, what they think is a restrictive level, they've been really letting the data speak to them. And as you highlighted in the introduction, if anything, economies have proven a little bit more resilience than what you know central banks would have thought previously. So you know, what central banks now are are again trying to do is figure out, you know, there is a lag, obviously, between when they change policy and when it impacts the economy. But they're trying to ultimately say, well, are we at the point now where we think we're kind of there? Or do we ultimately have to do more? And I think, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, they are definitely getting closer to the end than the beginning. But I don't think we're quite out of the woods yet in terms of how high interest rates ultimately need to be And also not just a level they need to reach, but the fact that they probably need to stay at that level, you know, a lot longer than what the market is priced. And you mentioned the equity market in particular and, you know, the bond markets probably in this camp as well. But, you know, those two markets generally think that central banks will be able to either, you know, engineer this immaculate decline in inflation without there being much economic damage so that, you know, earnings hold up okay and that you can maybe even see some, uh, cuts from interest rates, uh, for cu- cuts from central banks, uh, without there being much economic damage either. So, you know, again, I think those hopes are probably misplaced. And again, from the perspective of the Bank of Canada, they need to keep their eye on the ball with respect to the data and ultimately inflation. I wonder if we can get into sort of inflation, the data, and just bring in 
the story of earnings are really sort of trying to get to the center of the inflation and what's inflation from other causes. Um, and ultimately where we're seeing prices rise and they have risen and are gonna stay there for good because they can. And I guess that goes to the story of rates staying at a certain level for longer. How much have we seen in terms of prices kind of across the board rising for good, do you think? Yeah, I think what we see when you go into a lot of the inflation data, uh, especially coming out of the pandemic, is that there's been a, a certain amount of willingness on the part of households to pay more for things. I mean, part of that was made easier by, uh, you know, strong wage growth as well as government stimulus. So what you tend to see ultimately, at least in the level of prices, is that you know, it's it's rare that prices really fall uh, unless there's a major economic shock. So there will be elements of the price story that does stay elevated for longer. Uh, some of that does drop out of the inflation data because remember inflation is the year ago change in prices. So uh, even if the level is sort of permanently higher, it's really the rate of change that matters. And I think this is going to be, you know, an interesting and potentially complicated landscape for central banks to at least talk through, if not operate through, because we're at the point uh, in the next couple of months where the year ago uh, change in prices is actually going to show an increase in headline inflation. Uh, so again, going back to the notion that markets were of the view that you know, central banks could cut interest rates by the end of the year, you know, that, that's a difficult uh, observation to square with the fact that at least uh, optically, you're seeing inflation reaccelerate, you know, through the balance of the year. But, you know, that's the year ago math that I think everyone has a, a reasonable good grasp on. But if you peel back that element to it and really get to the core of what inflation uh, is doing, it's still very much driven by wages and the labor market. So insofar as the labor market has remained tight and without there being much weakness there, now that's keeping underlying price pressure elevated. So we like to talk about breaking the inflation basket into very you know transitory components and then the stickier, more uh, persistent components. And it's that persistent category that you can tie to you know core services, which again has a pretty close correlation to the wage picture. And it's that part of the inflation basket that really hasn't come down in a sustainable manner such that central banks can feel comfortable that their job is done. And that, again, it largely comes down to the recognition that interest rates probably need to be higher because ultimately you need to drive more weakness in the wider economy and more weakness specifically in the labor market so that wage pressures begin to ease somewhat and that very sticky part of the inflation basket starts to come down as well. Um. Uh, I'll quote you back to yourself and let you run with it. But I think you said earlier at some point that that resilience might be that word that that seems to hang around for all of us this year. Um, but but dig into the concept for us. I mean, why has it all been so resilient? Is it just the savings story? Is there something else in there? Yeah, I guess I mean coming back to the notion of resilience, it would be only appropriate that the word resilience remains resilient in the eyes of the market and. <laughs> I think you can probably drop resilience into the same bucket as pivot and as transitory. These sort of nice little phrases or words that can kind of encapsulate the nature of a market. Uh, and, you know, I think ultimately getting back to what resilience is and, you know, this is something that I think a lot of us have spent a lot of time thinking about, especially over the first half of the year. We're kind of at that midway point where 
it lends itself to some natural reflection on the year thus far. And I think what's caught you know, the market and I think a lot of investors off guard is, is exactly that theme that the economy has been resilient to a pretty dramatic increase in interest rates over a, a pretty short period of time. So you know, I would put myself in this camp as well that I would have thought that you would have seen more in the way of economic weakness as the interest rate story has really dominated uh, the economy and markets. But you know, why maybe that hasn't happened, I, I don't think, again, we can escape it. I think it's just a question of timing. So a few of the issues that have added to that economic resilience, uh, I mean, first and foremost is how much savings households have accrued. And again, part of that is from the pand pandemic stimulus, which again, admittedly, a lot of that probably has run its course. But more durably, there's been, again, strong wage growth that has helped to reinforce household pocketbooks and the release of pent-up demand. So a lot of uh, spending was deferred through the pandemic. And I like to use the example of haircuts that if you've you know, gone three years without getting a haircut, you're not going to make three years of haircuts within you know, a week to catch up. So some of that you know, is still out there in the background that has left households you know, with more income than they would otherwise would have. So we've quantified this. We've done a lot of work on the research side of things to try to figure out you know, this pool of savings, you know, it will ultimately be drawn down. It's certainly happening in the U.S. Canada's maybe a little bit slower in terms of drawing that down. But, you know, the upshot for the economy is that, you know, this is something that can contribute to, you know, more uh, momentum and economic growth in a backwards looking sense. But ultimately, again, it's, it's something that will run out and you will see the impact of higher interest rates slowing the economy you know, most likely over the second half of this year and into 2024. Can I just go back to that, that small, well, it's not a small comparison, but the comparison you made between the U.S. and Canada in terms of savings rates, what, what accounts for that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, if you look at labor market performance, it's been, you know, somewhat comparable, uh, you know, stimulus from governments. I mean, that, again, you can probably, probably quantify a slight difference there, but you know, maybe it's just coming back down to the nature that, you know, Canada was probably a little bit locked down for longer in terms of, you know, allowing savings to build without that release of, of economic activity, whereas the U.S. opened up a little bit earlier than Canada in that sense. So, you know, maybe that's, that's part of the story. And also, if you want to get down to, you know, the nature of interest rates as well, and we've, again, talked about this in, in prior webcasts, and it's an important theme that if you think about the nature of the mortgage market in the United States, uh, it tends to be less interest rate sensitive given very, you know, long duration mortgages with the ability to refinance at lower rates. So all things equal, it probably takes longer for the credit tightening that we've seen to work its way through uh, the U.S., you know, relative to Canada. Uh, so the fact that we've got a little bit more savings on our side, I think, can contribute to maybe a little bit stronger performance for the Canadian economy uh, relative to the U.S. So, so on the mortgage front, to sort of continue uh, that idea within Canada, you had warned, I mean, nobody's immune to, to the discussion of there are more people perhaps more stretched in Canada than there are in other cases in terms of the housing market and their mortgages. Um, it seems to be okay. I mean, we're actually hearing of bursts of activity all, all across the country. Um, what, what are your thoughts? What's take the temperature of that for us? Yeah, no, I think, again, it's something that I've been a little bit surprised at that you haven't seen more in the way of, of weakness, specifically in the housing market as interest rates have gone higher. 
Um, but I think there's a, you know, a lot to disentangle. I mean, I think you look at the supply of new homes that have hit the market that really hasn't increased very much. So you could still say that the housing market is fairly tight from a supply side. I think, again, people have been very cautious in terms of trying to figure out when to list, but obviously with nicer weather, there's that natural seasonal dynamic where you're maybe seeing a little bit more activity um, taking place there as well. But, you know, another theme that, you know, I've heard from at least meetings across the country in the last few weeks is that, you know, lenders have offered a fair bit of forbearance when it comes to uh, mortgages. So we've seen, obviously, the variable rate shock in terms of higher uh, trigger rates being triggered and, and higher immediate uh, mortgage payments through the variable rate channel. Uh, but what lenders have, have tended to do, at least, is to keep payments manageable. They've been willing to extend amortization. So you're getting at least little anecdotes here and there of, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 year amortizations, which, again, allows the interest rate sensitivity be, to be a little bit more muted. But again, it doesn't get us out of the woods. It's just something that you end up kicking the can a little bit further down the road. That balance outstanding remains. And if anything, you know, if you do too much in the way of, of mortgage forbearance, you're ending up paying just interest as opposed to paying down your principal. So, you know, it does at least eliminate some very short-term downside risk, but ultimately it doesn't put us in a long-term position where we want to be very favorable or favorably inclined towards the debt dynamic that, you know, Canadians uh, face. And again, we've talked about this ad nauseum in recent years, but that debt burden that Canada ultimately needs to reconcile with is significant and will take a tremendous amount of time. Uh, just as a final observation on the interest rate channel, I mean, again, we're only beginning to see the beginnings of the fixed rate channel start to readjust to higher interest rates as well. So, you know, that's going to be something that over the next three to four years and central banks and others have warned about this, that that mortgage pressure is going to be, you know, very acute over the next couple of years. So all, all that to say is that we, would have thought there had been a little bit weakness, uh, more weakness than what's been observed thus far. But again, I just can't feel comfortable to say conclusively that we're out of the woods and that things are materially better just because the last six months have been better. Yeah. Yes. And we depend on you for that. <laughs> Clearing, again, setting us on a, a steady course because, you know, it looks pretty good right now in terms of certain areas of the market. Just to follow up, the demographics question, you'll, you'll notice Lots of headlines right now talking about the bank of mom and dad. We've heard that for years. Is it is it any more important to the overall story of housing right now than it was months ago, even two years ago? Like, has, has anything changed on that particular front, the wealth transfer? Um, I don't think anything has really changed. I mean, there's two elements to the demographic story, both of which are important. I think the first is immigration and we have seen a very dramatic increase in immigration. I think Canada reached you know, 40 million people, which is you know, a pretty remarkable rate of growth in the last couple of years. And that, I think, you know, really depends on your horizon. So if we think about the long term, having that, that uh, flow of immigration, I think is really powerful. And I think it offsets the natural aging of the domestic population and reduced birth rates. So, you know, that's, again, a, a much longer term theme than maybe what we're talking about today. But you know, I'm very favorably inclined to see that uh, at least support uh, the wider economy. I think it's ultimately still inflationary because it takes a while for, you know, the housing supply, especially maybe on the affordable housing side, to kind of catch up to meet that demand. So it still leads to those imbalances that contributes to the shorter term theme of inflation. But, 
if you want to take a really long perspective, long-term perspective, it is very positive for Canada's economy, you know, more generally. So that's, you know, one thing that gets talked about a lot in the demographic context when it comes to housing. Uh, but you mentioned the bank of mom and dad. And again, this is kind of culled from a lot of the anecdotal conversations that, you know, I've had and my colleagues have had uh, with recent advisor meetings and that you're seeing, again, uh, the older generation pulling out uh, equity from their homes to help uh, the younger generation uh, enter the housing market. And, you know, part of that's, that's natural. Like even my grandmother had a phrase better with warm hand than cold when it comes to inheritances. So at least you see the product of, of that uh, reach the next generation. But, you know, what I also want to be mindful of is, you know, where are those funds being directed? Are they being directed into real estate in a sense that this is uh, someone's forever home or a, or a starter home that ends and ends up maybe being a better story? Or is it now something that, you know, for somebody that's taken on a, a significant mortgage and is facing higher carrying costs, is that bank of mom and dad just being used to meet increased expenses? And if that's starting to be used for just, you know, day-to-day -day expenses, then that's a little bit wor more worrisome in the sense that, again, it, it reflects the underlying financial fragility of the system. And there is a certain amount of wealth that can be transferred uh, but again, you're not creating any new wealth necessarily. So the longer term implications of that, I think, is still something we want to view, you know, somewhat cautiously. So, you know, when you pair the immigration story with the bank of mom and dad, there's obviously a lot of conflicting or at least is not pointing in one uniform direction. And that's sort of the, the essence of long term themes is that there's a lot of different moving pieces and it's very difficult to disentangle a very clear yes or no good or bad type of conclusion. So, so with that, a couple of questions on this, you know, taking a longer look to the overall uh, rate hike story, maybe eventually cuts, um, what's on the horizon? I mean, how do you, you always look long term? That's, that's ultimately sort of the raison d'etre, the managed portfolios that, that you manage. Um, tell us sort of longer term always, give us an update, but also, you know, through the end of this year, is it, is it, are there opportunities that open up? I mean, it looks like the market is sort of loosening up a bit. Yeah, so uh, for those that know our positioning and have heard us speak before, you know that we've been on the defensive side of things. And, you know, that, again, is largely driven through the macro considerations that, you know, the market has misjudged the risks around inflation and, and has been maybe a little bit too eager in looking for the soft landing story or that central banks will be able to cut interest rates without there being economic damage. And we've tended to, to push back against that narrative uh, with, you know, the first half of the year thus far, you know, that has, has not necessarily been the right call. But what we've noticed, though, at least, you know, is that the sentiment channel is an important input for us. And that's gone from being pretty cautious over the, the first half of the year to now getting more bullish, more towards the greed side of things as opposed to fear. And that's always an indicator that we would want to tend to lean against. Um, so I'm worried that this momentum type of market you know, really can't continue. And I think a lot of strategists are starting to say the same type of thing that you know, the first half of the year was sort of the, the dog that didn't bark in terms of the, the recession story that didn't arrive. But you know, ultimately, if people feel like they need to chase the market now, uh, that to me is a bit of a worrying signal. So you know, I, I think maintaining a certain degree of defensiveness, you know, is still appropriate uh, over the balance of the year. Uh, we don't definitely want to chase this market given how far um, it's run, but that's really the undercurrent of, of how we want to view it. And then as we 
you know, think over the, the much longer term, again, it's something where when we put these portfolios together, at least even from a benchmark perspective, we want to be you know, globally diversified across regions. Uh, you know, one of the long-term themes that we think about a lot is, is the relative growth opportunity presented by emerging markets. So we have that allocation as, a, as an overweight that I hesitate to use the word structural, but it, it's, it's effectively a structural overweight where we always want to have uh, more capital deployed in those regions to pick up on uh, stronger growth potential and generally cheaper valuations. So the size of that position obviously modulates with the cycle, but if you wanted an example of the long-term thinking that goes into our asset allocation decisions, that would be one where the preference is clear for emerging markets, especially relative to you know, our home market here in Canada. Okay, I was just going to follow up on that. We're not, we're not included in the emerging markets. It's not sort of U.S. versus everything else. Or actually, is it U.S. versus everything else right now? T tell us your comments on the U.S. dollar. Lots of discussion about that. Where do you come down? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, the U.S. dollar, again, you know, we've seen a fair bit of weakening uh, in, the, in the broad U.S. dollar. A lot of that's happened, you know, relative to the euro, uh, the Japanese yen, the Swiss franc to some extent. Uh, and part of that's sort of, you know, we look at, at the U.S. dollar in broad cycles and, you know, it's not maybe altogether that surprising that we reached the end of a very sort of bull market type of uh, environment um, for the U.S. dollar. But, you know, what we think about ultimately is not just the U.S. dollar in that sort of broad sense, but we all often have to bring it back to the Canadian dollar story. And, you know, one thing that, you know, we've uh, I touched on a little bit earlier that, you know, the, the risk around the Bank of Canada you know, having to maybe tighten a little bit more than the Fed just because of that momentum in Canada, that, that stronger pool of, of uh, excess savings in Canada relative to the U.S. So what we were able to do earlier this month and, and, and uh, earlier in the year was to, you know, actually reduce the degree to which we were underweight the Canadian dollar. So we know that we've been very concerned about Canada. All those concerns are very true in, in the medium term, but the tactical flexibility of our funds do let us calibrate those long-standing positions to appreciate shorter-term opportunities. And this is going back to, you know, earlier in, in June where the Bank of Canada um, didn't or was not priced to raise interest rates. And we had a pretty high conviction view that they would inevitably have to do that. And in fact, that's what they ended up doing. Um, but because that wasn't priced in the shorter term, it did give us that opportunity to pull the currency lever a little bit to uh, try to position the funds for that that relative strength short term in the Canadian dollar, such as we've seen over the last month or so. So interesting. Um, uh, more more questions here rolling in. So this is going specifically into sectors, but it, you know, fascinating the interest rate story into the financials. Uh, generally, this question asking whether it, rising interest rates are benefiting the life goes more. To what degree? Yeah, that tends to be a little bit more micro than than the way that I would think about um, our allocation. So when it comes to sector allocations, when it comes to you know factor exposures uh, styles more generally, our 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 guiding principle is to really maintain diversification and let the underlying managers find the best opportunities within those regions. So. Uh, we always want to think about having a, the right balance between growth and value. Uh, we use a lot of sort of sector neutral strategies uh, in terms of building blocks so that the analysts that are responsible for individual uh, portfolios or the portfolio managers for the more diversified strategies, you know, they can listen to the research and they can come to their own conclusions as to 
you know, what the rate sensitivity is for individual securities. And that's, again, something that we would broadly characterize as the security selection piece of our overall value proposition. So they're choosing securities relative to their benchmarks and it's our responsibility to maintain a higher level of diversification, but do the tactical tilts, you know, region to region, uh, asset class to asset class. So, so it's fair to say that um, you have used, you mentioned that example uh, in June to be as tactical as, as you feel is appropriate. And, and that is happening right now. Just kind of go back to the overall positioning, if you don't mind, give us the picture. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, again, we think about investment themes over multiple uh, horizons. So obviously having the long-term, medium-term type of view is underpinning a lot of the strategic allocations that we make. And we pay very close attention to the evolution of the business cycle, which in turn is, is informed by inflation, central banks, uh, government policy, as well as the labor market. And that tends to set the degree to which we're overweight or underweight sort of broad asset classes or even on a a regional uh, perspective in the equity market, and we consider, you know, plus sectors within uh, the fixed income side of the portfolio. So, you know, all of that is is very much tied to that sort of medium-term cyclical view. And then, as I mentioned, just with the example of the Canadian dollar, we have shorter-term opportunities that occasionally present themselves um, as well. But to bring it back to the positioning that we currently have, again, we're we're still maintaining that uh, relative degree of defensiveness. Uh, by no means are we max defensive. And again, when we think about the multi-step process that goes into our investment allocation decisions, the macro, again, continues to be concerning. But as we've seen with some of the other pillars or the other lenses through which we look at the world, it's not as negative. So we've tried to calibrate that degree of defensiveness appropriately. So we're still somewhat defensive. You know, We still have that preference, again, uh, for at least you know, emerging markets relative to Canada. Uh, we still have protection against inflation. Again, the inflation story, we've seen inflation decelerate, but, you know, the sense that inflation could reaccelerate just on base year effects and as well as that, you know, persistent part of the inflation story not uh, coming down significantly. We still think that there is uh, some motivation or some rationalization for having some residual protection against inflation. So holding a certain amount of commodity exposure as well as inflation protected government debt, that's part of that. Um, story as well. And then as we kind of wrestle between, you know, the U.S. and Europe, you know, we've been a little bit more cautious on the U.S. again through the U.S. dollar story and have looked to uh, Europe as, as at least less sensitive to that weakness in the U.S. dollar. But as you can imagine, if we look forward and start to see more evidence of recession biting at some point in the future, I think you still would prefer to have a little bit more of a, a U.S. dollar exposure and U.S. equity exposure compared to, to Europe. So that may be an indication of some of the things we could see happening over the next year or so. Um, okay, well, let's, let's just put this last question in here. It's, it's a great question. You've answered pieces of it, but just to kind of swing back. So how much of an impact might the rising rate story in the U.S. impact the Canadian interest rate decisions rate story here? Do how, you know, what sort of divergence is possible? What might we see? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a close correlation between um, the two economies. So we've seen this certainly in, in prior cycles and would expect to see you know, a certain uh, degree of that today. Uh, but I think, you know, there's a couple of nuances there that are worth exploring. So, you know, first and foremost, the nature of the banking model. Uh, so as we saw some issues within regional banks, within the smaller banks in the United States, that's contributed to 
maybe all things equal, a little bit more credit tightening in US versus Canada. So if you translate what that means to the Bank of Canada versus the Fed, again, if, if the Fed's seeing that implicit tightening coming through that portion of their banking model, all things equal, they might need to do a little bit less in the policy front. Whereas Canada, yes, credit is tightened, but not to the same extent given the structure of our banking model, that again could maybe force the Bank of Canada to think about you know, slightly higher interest rates, which you know, that hooks back into that tactical theme that I discussed earlier about saying that you know, maybe the Canadian dollar can strengthen a little bit more, the market may be underappreciating how far the Bank of Canada could potentially have to uh, raise interest rates. So you know, all that is to say that yes, there are these broad cycles where monetary policy moves in lockstep, but there are when you get close to a turning point in a cycle, I think such as we are, some of those more regional nuances, the structure of the banking model, the resilience of the consumer, the nature of the housing market, the nature of the mortgage market, some of those can uh, be teased out a little bit to give you know, a bit of a, a tactical opportunity for those willing to look at that shorter term opportunity. That's great. Um, over the summer, what are, are the biggest either data points or events that we know about, you know, Jackson Hole, um, that, that you might just you know, let investors know they really want to keep an eye on. Is there a certain trajectory in a particular data point that, that interests you, you know, extra or, or an event? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think if there's one part of the economy everybody needs to be really focused on is the labor market. And I'll mix a couple of analogies here, one of which I used already, but, you know, the labor market has been the dog that hasn't barked as well as the other shoe that's, that's yet to drop. So, again, you've seen the tightening taking place. You've seen some evidence that, the economy, at least some of the rate sensitive parts of the economy have at least stopped accelerating. But again, the fact that the labor market still generally has held its own has allowed uh, the economy to remain resilient and it's kept inflation elevated. So you know, that to me is something where you want to be very, very focused on because once the labor market starts to weaken, that's a signal to central banks that, you know, again, they can probably take their foot off the brake in terms of slowing the economy down. Uh, that should also allow inflation to start coming down. But the unfortunate consequence is that that labor market weakness itself is inherently recessionary. And that's something that will start to impact corporate earnings. It'll start to impact market sentiment more generally. And, and that probably is a more challenging environment for risk assets. And that's the type of uh, backdrop, at least from a market perspective, that you know, really is aligned with how we've defensively positioned the funds. David Tolk, it's a pleasure to have time with you and wish you and your family a good summer. Likewise, have a great summer. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.